This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for August 29th, 2014. The Gab Fest to end all Gab Fest edition. I'm David Plotz, the editor at large of Slate in Washington, D.C. On this week's show... Will the president overhaul America's immigration policy without congressional approval? And will the GOP shut down the government if he does? Then the bizarre face-off over the XM Bank. And does it signify anything about the rise of a libertarian wing in the Republican Party? And then it's the 100th anniversary of the start of World War I. We'll talk about the Great War's long shadow over international politics, over business, technology, society, and we'll have cocktail chatter. Slate senior editor Emily Bazelon joins us from New Haven. Hello, Emily. Hello, everybody. John Dickerson has been found. John, what was it like to be rescued from that well <laughs> where you were trapped for the last 28 days? What, how did you feel when you got out of there? I came back into the light blinking. I thought Truman was still president. Um, I, I thought, didn't why the did armistice I come back from vacation? Signed. What is the point of that? What? You thought, what? what is the point of coming back from vacation? Why, yeah. why am well, I doing this? Well, to hear your voice and to be once again in community with you and David. That was really what drew me back from uh, my otherwise completely serene uh, existence. Well, we're really glad you're back. We are. So we have had a lot of special guests on the GabFest over the years. We have had Stephen Colbert on the GabFest. We have had my wife, for goodness sakes. But I have to say, I have never been as excited about a guest as I am today. Joining us on the GabFest from somewhere in Oregon in a miracle of podcast cross-pollination is Dan Carlin. Hello, Dan. You guys are so nice to have me on. I'm excited to be here. So just to tell our listeners who Dan is and the unlikely event that they don't know, if you do not know Dan, you're missing something. He's the host of two of the most popular podcasts in the world. One is a political show called Common Sense. And then the other, which is undoubtedly the greatest podcast ever in podcast land, is Hardcore History, his all-too-occasional show about grand historical events. Right now, Dan is about 15 or so hours into World War I. Blueprint for Armageddon is the name of that series of shows. It's four. I guess you've done four episodes over the several months about World War One. When a new episode comes off, I drop my kids off at the dog kennel and uh, and just sit down and listen and listen all the way through. So welcome. We're to trying the to Fest. finish it more quickly than the, <laughs> than war, the war itself <laughs> took. Yes. <laughs> do you think that's? Do you think you will finish it by the end of this year? Is there any chance of that? No, 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 no. I don't think so. 
Uh, and, and that's because, as usual, it's, it's taking me much more time than I ever envisioned. I, I have a terrible track record picking how long these things will take. What idiot decides to do the First World War in a podcast series? Unless that's the whole podcast series, right? That idiot, thank God, is you. Because it's really great. <laughs> All right. You guys uh, are too kind. Before we get started to the meat of the show, we have a very exciting announcement. Last week we teased it. This week we have the details. Our first ever podcast crossover show, GavFest Superfest, Superfest West, sponsored by Acura TLX, is happening on October 5th in San Francisco. Tickets are on sale now at slate.com slash West. It's going to be the political GavFest. And the Culture Gab Fest in one room. Mike Pesca, host of the Gist with Mike Pesca, is going to is going to be referee it, keep us apart. It's going to be a great discussion. We'll talk about topics of interest to both both sides. There will be games. There will be possibly violence. I wanted the show where we talk of to- topics of interest to no one. <laughs> that, that may be this week. Actually, <laughs> we may have that this week in a departure. The, the XM Bank. Uh, so anyway, snag tickets now. They are going very, very fast. The Slate Plus folks, you will get a discount, but uh, everybody get tickets now at slate.com/slash/superfestwest, San Francisco, October fifth. We are heading for an interesting showdown between the executive and legislative branches of government. If the leaks and signs are to be believed, and John Dickerson will tell us whether they are to be believed, President Obama is preparing to take broad executive action on immigration, with Congress failing to have passed the immigration bill that, that went through the Senate. The president seems to be getting ready to unilaterally modify immigration policy. Two key elements that have been talked about. One would be suspending deportations for a huge chunk of people who are in the country illegally. One idea is to everyone who is, has a relative, basically, would not be deported. The other idea would be a, an expansion of the H-1B visas or the visas that are going to the most valuable high-tech workers, something that the technology industry has been clamoring for. So the president doesn't seem can create a path to citizenship for people here illegally without congressional action. So Emily, First on the legal question, can the president take executive action on this and stay on the right side of the law? Is he is he on safe ground? What can he do? Yes, it is legal. So the criticism of this coming from Republicans and and the right generally is that he's exceeding his authority, that you can't just unilaterally declare as a matter of policy that you're not going to enforce a whole area of law ahead of time, that that is superseding Congress's authority. And, you know, to continue the argument, though I don't agree with it, that in this case, Congress has actually failed to stop these deportations. And so for Obama to step in and do it on his own is to directly contradict and defy Congress. But the thing is that that's just not how executive authority works, right? I mean, in almost every area of law, the president, the governor, the mayor has discretion, and laws never get exercised uniformly. So um, I'm going to rely here on Eric Posner, whose column I edit for Slate, and he he made the, drew the analogy to jaywalking. Think of all the times we don't prosecute that. Or college kids who are smoking pot in their dorms and the cops don't come after them. These are all examples of the executive deciding not to uniformly enforce the law. And that's what Obama is doing here. It's just a bigger example of that phenomenon. Emily, at what level would the president have to get to before you would say, 
actually, this is this is an overreach. I mean, what if he, he decided I'm not going to enforce? What if he said I'm not going to enforce any law, any federal law? It's just my that's well, just my discretion. Well, he's not going to do that. What he can't do is not enforce a law in a way that's like racially or you know ethnically discriminatory, right? So he can't violate equal protection and violate the Constitution in that way, and he can't grant amnesty. He can't actually change the legal status of these people he's not deporting. But the executive, the presidents for decades have not deported people, right? Like we saw this with the boat people coming in from Cuba and probably some other country I'm forgetting about. There are lots of instances of this. And it's actually, especially in with regards immigration, which is so clearly something that the national government is responsible for. The president has like even extra discretion and authority. So Dan, let me let me go to you on this because you're you're very good about these questions of power and accretion of power. Does it disturb you as a citizen that the president would take these powers on when Congress has, has is more or less saying we don't want you to take these powers on? Well, you you use the exact word that's perfect here. Disturbs legal, illegal loopholes. You know, we can debate that forever, but. In my opinion, you know, we've seen probably since the Jackson administration in the early 19th century, the slow accumulation of power into the executive's hands and away from the legislature. And it always seems like a good idea if you're on the same side as the president is on a given issue, especially if Congress seems to be doing nothing, which, you know, I think we all agree Congress seems to be doing nothing. Nonetheless, it creates, I think, dangerous precedents. And I think that the people that would want President Obama to act on this unilaterally are going to be very upset when someone gets into office that doesn't think like they do and does the same thing on issues that they feel strongly in the other direction about. Only problem is that we've been doing this for so long that it almost seems like standard operating procedure. And just because President Obama might say, I don't think this is a logical place for the president to go without Congress, doesn't mean that a Republican president after him is going to you know, feel bound by that. So it's almost like a Pandora's box situation. And once we start expecting and allowing presidents to do this kind of thing, I mean, I don't know how you put the genie back in the bottle. I'm opposed to it. Like you said, I'm, I'm uncomfortable with the president doing this. I don't know why he just wouldn't leave it in Congress's hands and let them stew on the issue and try to do something. I mean, what we're talking about the president doing here is a stopgap measure. It doesn't really solve anything. And so I think if you put this in Congress's hands and allow the pressures to build up, and immigration is something, as we all know, where the pressures tend to build up, I think eventually they're forced to confront the issue. If I'm Congress, I'd rather have the president step into it and then slam him left, right, and indifferent you know, in the election. Um, yeah, I'm uncomfortable with it. That's so, a good way to put so, it. So, John, let's go to you on this because you, one of your lines, I think, when we talked about the failure of the immigration bill in the House was you were saying that the GOP is playing a, maybe not a long game on this but a medium-term game. They just don't want to deal with this issue before – they definitely didn't want to deal with it before the 2014 election and possibly not even before a 2016 election, possibly not before they potentially had the White House. Do you still feel like that immigration is an issue that the Republican – majority in the House and the soon-to-be Republican majority in the Senate will actually try to take on? Or are they just like, forget it, let's just let Well, I think, it. you know, the, so the reason they haven't taken it on so far is that it creates a family fight. And they want the fight not to be among themselves, but with the president. And that's why some people think this is politically stupid for the president to do this, because what it does is it allows Republicans to unify in a fight against him rather than 
shoving a wedge, you know, in elections at this point. You're what you're, and we'll talk about this in our second topic. What you try and do is find an issue that breaks up the other party and gets them fighting with themselves. Because they are always going to fight with themselves, that's why John Boehner didn't bring it up in this cycle. And that's why a lot of people think they won't want to bring it up again in 2015 or 2016, because the presidential candidates are going to run the one issue that they can quickly get voters to see where they stand on a whole host of issues. Immigration is kind of a proxy where voters will say, well, if if he's good on immigration, then he must be good on issues X, Y, and Z. So it's one that, that these candidates running for president will be using to jockey. And once they use it, it screws up any legislative chance because it just makes everything too fraught. So there's a lot of reasons why their internal dynamics will make it difficult for them to bring this up on their own. And I'll stop talking. There are lots of other politics. Well, well, let's use that and then go back to sort of to fold back together what Emily and Dan both said. So, Emily, I would throw to you, you have a Congress which, as John describes, is not willing because it is controlled by a majority party that doesn't want to tackle this. It is really not willing to to address this. So, so the, I think the president perceives that he has to – that we have a national crisis, the child migration. We have a national crisis because our technology firms can't get the people they need. We have a national crisis. We have too many people living in the shadows. So he has to act. But don't you share, even, even you who have supported this or at least endorsed this as a fully legal action, don't you share the worry that this attempt to preserve viable government, like to say that because the legislator is an act, isn't acting, the executive has to act, is worrisome? Yes, I do agree with Dan that this general encroaching executive and usurpation of power and the way it it ratchets only in one direction over time, I agree with all of those concerns, except the part about it being a useless stopgap solution. I mean, the president has been the deporter in chief. He's deported two million people. Maybe he did that because he was truly worried about, you know, all these undocumented people walking around, or maybe he did it just to court favor with the Republicans in Congress, which has completely failed. It doesn't matter that that has produced a great deal of human suffering. And to me, the idea that that would diminish is meaningful, even if there isn't a clearer path to amnesty and citizenship. Just letting people stay put will make a difference. And because I don't trust Congress to do anything, I do feel drawn to that pragmatic solution. But if I really stood by my principles, I'm not very good at that. But if I really stood <laughs> no, by them, not. then I would be more on Dan's side and on your side, because I know that that's part of how you see this calculus, too. Let me just point out one stark fact that I think we're all aware of. And that's that none of this is going to mean anything in the long term. Those of us from states near the Mexican border, uh, I'm from Los Angeles originally, we remember when Ronald Reagan in the middle 80s had the the huge immigration reform stuff and how cosmetic it was. I mean, if, if, if you really understand the border, you understand that there's no real modern way to prevent those people you just deported from coming right back. And they will be helped by people on the other side of the border who need that labor. So in a funny way, there's a lot of this that's cosmetic in terms of, you know, the political reality of an upcoming election versus the facts on the ground in places like New Mexico, Texas, Arizona, and Southern California. But I think it makes a big difference in how people live their lives. If you, you know, one of the things that explains this rush of children crossing the border is that parents used to be able to basically go back and forth. Now that's much harder to do. The parents are stuck here. And so that gives them a bigger impetus to try to bring their kids over. So, Yes, it's true that we're not going to stop the flow of illegal immigration that's really tied to economic forces much more than anything else in the employment situation and just the health of the economy. But I do think in terms of the actual people we are talking about, it does make a big difference. 
John, on the politics of this, there are mumblings, mostly from the Democrats. Oh, the Republicans are going to use this to try to shut down the government. Isn't the correct strategy, as I think Dan hinted at a second ago, just to be really aggrieved? Like to let the president go ahead and do it and just be super aggrieved by it? That's assuming that the Republicans could all be in agreement about their strategy, which they aren't, which is what the last shutdown showed, which is that, yes, if all Republicans could play – uh, by this or sing by the same hymnal that would help the party most broadly, you would be aggrieved on abuse of power grounds. You would say, well, of course, we all want to find a, a way to to keep these families from being broken up, but we believe in law of order and secure the border and do and stop there. Because once you go to shutting down the government, you then turn an issue that might work for you because it rallies your base and also because uh, the president's approval ratings are low enough that you might not, depending on how he plays this, it might not work out that well for him even outside of the Republican base. But once you start shutting down the government, you start you move to a position that the Republicans are just in a terrible shape on. Just let me pause mm-hmm. you there. So you, the, the way you would shut down the government is that the government needs a continuing resolution to fund government activities. October 1st. October 1st. And so you would tie a bill that would ban the president from doing this or defund anything he did right. on this. Now, the issue there is the president would have to make a fight over it. In other words, he'd have to say, I'm not going to sign a bill. Now, of course, then it wouldn't co- it wouldn't pass through the Senate, assuming that the Senate takes the president's view. But I think just leaving the, the sort of back and forth of how the budgeting would work, the question is, how would this work in terms of the elections? I mean, you've already seen Democrats running in those states, those seven states that Mitt Romney won in the last presidential race, the so-called red states, the red state Democrats, opposing this on a variety of different grounds. Mark Pryor in Arkansas said, you know, the president can't just act willy-nilly without Congress on an issue that's this important. So what what you have an interesting tension here because it would – an issue like this, if you look at – there was a, a Gallup poll at the end of August and asked what's the most important problem – asked Republicans, what to them is the most important problem facing America today? 22 percent, the number one answer said immigration. So you are taking an issue and you're poking the Republican base in the eye on the thing they are most riled up about. And so since non-presidential year elections are most – more about turning out your own base, you're giving something that really – up the other side and doesn't necessarily do that same thing for Democrats. In Colorado in the Senate race there, which is close, there are a sufficient number of Hispanic voters that it might matter some, but it's not going to energize the Democratic base as much as it would, as it will the Republican base. So that's why you see these Democrats running in red states saying to the president, don't do this. And behind the scenes, their strategists are even more upset. So the question then for the president becomes, and if you go back and listen to his second inaugural address, which was written in in historical terms, where he talked about the advancement of civil rights and gay rights and women's rights under his administration, you can see this as the kind of thing when he is when he leaves office in 20 years from now saying, I had colossal battles over giving more people health care and big battles over, you know, trying to undo the horrible sort of screwed up immigration system for Hispanics. And so you get into a conflict here between his long term legacy and the short term needs of the Democrats running for the Senate. But don't they – couldn't they just wait, John? I don't get that. It's like November will be over and then, you know, Mary Landro and they'll all be elected or not. No, they'll, they'll all be lost. They'll, they'll all be all lost. lost. Exactly. And then he won't be responsible for them. Why not just hold off on this for a few months? Because the Republicans might have – might control the Senate, but that wouldn't matter if these are all executive orders. What I hear is that, you know, he's getting a lot of pressure to do this fast. I mean, you know, but like yesterday. It's almost September. Yeah. So why can't you months? wait two months? I yeah, don't understand that, that's it a good at all. Question. Like I don't have the they've answer They've been for that. waiting for this for whatever, six years, however long he's been in office. I don't have the, uh, I don't have the answer for that. 
Well, do you have the sense, just to wrap on this topic, do you have the sense that the president no longer gives a damn about the daily political requirements of the Democratic Party, that he's not sitting there worrying about it? He doesn't have another election. He can't win with the voters who are going to turn out in 2014 anyway. And so that he's that's just what like, some people see this as a I'm going to do of. what I want to do. Yeah, that's what some people see this as a sign of that he's just decided that he wants to do, you know, what's necessary. He thinks this is good government. I mean, this is a requirement uh, because there's action has been delayed for too long and that it's never going to get any better with the Republicans in control. And it'll only get worse if they take control over the Senate in terms of trying to do it sort of the right way. That makes zero sense to me as a matter of politics. I mean, I don't have no idea whether that's what's going on or not. But what if he gets an unexpected Supreme Court appointment to return to my own personal obsession? I mean, it will matter if he has lost the Senate at that point. Yes, but the, I guess the point is he, the writing's on the wall. He thinks he's already going to lose it. I see. I see. Okay. Let's move on to our next topic. In the ramp up to the 2014 election, Congress, as we just discussed, is not talking about very much. But there is one subject besides immigration that has injected itself into some 2014 races. It is the XM Bank. To call the Export-Import Bank... Obscure is to insult obscurity. It is a practically unknown government entity that exists to help U.S. companies sell their goods overseas. Really, it exists to help Boeing sell planes overseas. It has trudged along quietly for three quarters of a century, supported by left and right chamber of commerce types. Liberals, some liberals on the in the um, anti-crony capitalist wing have mumbled about it over the years and attacked it. Now we have a group of reform-minded conservatives, some more Tea Party, some libertarian, some just sort of in this reformist wing of the, the conservative movement, trying to kill the bank, which needs to be reauthorized in September. Let us just take a quick poll here and be everyone be honest. I'll start with you, Dan. Had you heard of the Exim Bank before people started talking about it in this? Yes, but I don't think I could have discussed it with any sort of intelligence at all. John? Yes, but that's because I cover this stuff. <laughs> Emily? Yes, but only because we had a GabFest fan visit us who worked for it, didn't we? Or was involved with it in some way? And other than that, I had no idea what it was. I w- I'm a no. I'm a no. <laughs> All right. So, Dan, why do you think – do you think that this is a fight about anything or is this simply some optics that people are using just to help them in, in campaigns? Well, I do think that there are people who feel strongly about this. I mean, Democrats, there have been Democrats for years who've brought this up as, as, as a way to funnel money to corporations that are so powerful and so rich that they shouldn't need any help anyway. And there are libertarian-leaning legislators who for a very long time and, – and think tanks and, and, and the Cato Institute and all that who have talked about this as being just one more way for government to pick winners and losers and all that kind of stuff. The problem is, is if you look at how other countries do all this stuff – I mean this free market system that so many of these, for example, libertarian-leaning uh, folks would like to see doesn't exist. And so the other, the other countries all deal in crony capitalism. And so when we talk about getting rid of some form of crony capitalism here, I think it's fair to say what does that mean for you know, Boeing or, or on the other side of the coin? Isn't Delta on the other side of the issue saying, yes, but this whole thing hurts a company like ours? So to me, yes, it's positioning for the election in the Republican Party. This is one of uh, several issues that the Tea Party types are helping to differentiate themselves from the you know Rockefeller business-friendly Republicans. And on the, on the Democratic side, there's always been this divide between maybe you'd call them neoliberals and the old-fashioned types that, that don't want corporate welfare. I think this is an old issue, and, and we're just sort of raising it again. I love the involvement of Delta in this. It's really funny. So Delta is a is – 
big American airline, and, and they are the funding source really behind a lot of this and a lot of the outrage in the sense that they don't like the fact that airlines overseas that want to buy Boeing jets are getting subsidies in the form of X low interest XM loans, and they themselves have to pay a higher price or an effective higher price. But there is a there's a way right, they have to pay more for the planes to, than another than a, foreign country would because for a Boeing plane. because they are able to get these subsidized loans. But there's something rich about Delta, which is an airline bailed out after 9/11, an airline that whose you know whose pensions have been guaranteed by the pension benefit uh, whatever it's called guarantee corporation guarantee corporation. They're, they're, as Dan you're saying there, like they're so we're so far from a libertarian kind of economy where mar- the market chooses winners and losers. There's so much government support and all sorts of these big companies and all sorts of ways to to pick out this one example and, and say this is the great crime seems to me a little bit rich. Well, especially because this one doesn't even lose the taxpayers' money, right? That said, if it's a bad idea, the like everyone else is doing it defense, is that really good enough? I mean, if there are losers and winners from this form of loans and Delta's the loser, is it really worse for the American economy to get rid of it? Well, but I have a question about that too. Why can't, I mean, if if Airbus, for example, the main competitor of Boeing has these same kind of loans and if, if getting rid of them in our country would mean that Delta was on a more playing field. But if we didn't get rid of them, why couldn't Delta go and then buy Airbus exactly. products? Take yeah, take exactly. take the uh, the discount the from the XM yeah. XM banks in Europe and, and and just say fine, we won't buy Boeing Airlines anymore because right. we can't buy them for the same rate we can buy Airbus. Right, that was exactly the question I had. Delta is going to win this. They're going to Delta is going to get some deal where they get whatever rate that foreign airlines are getting for these planes. There's going to be something worked out like that. And do you mean they'll win it because the XM, XM Bank won't get reauthorized or because they'll get made whole? No, they'll get made whole somehow. They'll get made whole. The XM Bank will get reauthorized. Yes, it will. Oh, that's really depressing. So now we're going to have like some other crony capitalism yes. that Delta's been. Wait, well, John, no, what's, John what's you doubt this? No, 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 no. It's just when I, I think we shouldn't let people miss the idea that if it gets reauthorized, there will still be... So it has to be reauthorized. In other words, this won't happen kind of like uh, automatically. And as a result, it'll be interesting to watch. I mean, I think what Dan says is right. This is all a lot of theater, especially when you think about the size here relative to some of the other bigger problems that have to be tackled in the budget. What makes it politically fun as a place to watch is that in the Republican Party, you have one of the, you know, the largest, most powerful outside funding source for campaigns is the Koch brothers and Americans for Prosperity, which they support. And Americans for Prosperity is behind the effort of getting rid of the Export-Import Bank. And so you see Republican candidates going off to Americans for Prosperity convention, telling them how crucial and central they are because of all the money they put into advertising to their campaigns. That used to be the role that the Chamber of Commerce used to play and that that regular old corporations like Boeing and Caterpillar and others who who benefit from the Export-Import Bank, that's the role they used to play, which was they were the ones who gave the money to the campaigns and it was their stuff that then lawmakers would vote for. So now you have this real fight in terms of because it real by which I mean it gets right at the most important thing that the lawmakers care about, which is the money that goes to keep them in office. I think as a left right, as a Democrats using this as a wedge, we talked about it earlier, you could imagine a Democrat trying to drive that wedge between Americans for Prosperity and the Chamber of Commerce. That wedge exists, but it doesn't as an electoral matter in terms of these Senate races. I don't think it has that much play because voters who end up having to vote in the end, like this all gets once you start talking about preferential credit to foreign countries to buy America, like I think you start to lose voters. But as a 
inter-party fight among Republicans, it may get reauthorized, but it will be a little bloody in doing so. I have a question, which, which I will start with you, Dan, but Emily, you can take it too. So let's say you did want to really tackle crony capitalism in this country. You did, you did think like the, these big corporations are getting too much at the expense of regular Americans, taxpayers, workers, whatever you, however you want to define it. What would be the things that you would do to weaken the power of these corporations or to weaken crony well, capitalism? Here's an example. I don't think there's anything, and I'm going to differ probably with a lot of my audience on this, anything theoretically wrong with having uh, an export-import bank. I think the problem comes into play when, when the government is, is – and I use the word corrupt. It's a little hard for some people. Uh, uh, they prefer something you know, special interest or compromised. Or, but when you've got a government that's corrupt, then any of these things which direct money towards any source becomes just another place for the corruption to intervene. In other words, I mean I remember, remember Microsoft uh, uh, several years ago was being threatened with a – I think it was over Windows, a, a monopolistic lawsuit. And they claimed that they were being shaken down by the government, that the government really didn't care one way or the other, but were, were looking for campaign contributions and would go to companies and say, well, you know, you, know, you might have a monopoly here unless, unless we change our minds. And I think that's what these things become. In other words, if the Export-Import Bank was really wide open to anyone and was really giving a lot of loans to small business in terms of real dollar amounts and, and not just overall numbers, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I do think there's something wrong you know, with the idea of picking winners and losers based on who's giving money to which candidates. So when you say, how do you solve this problem? To me, that boils down and factors down to the overall corruption problem. There's nothing wrong in my mind with an export-import bank if we're Sweden and the corruption level is really low. It's a different thing entirely when we're at the levels we're at today. We're a company – I mean the reason we all know that this is going to pass and be reauthorized is because we all know how much money is already pouring into the candidates and, and how they'll react to that. One other thing I would add is that we're also talking about this coming up after the Republican primaries are over. At the beginning of the primary cycle in this last campaign, seven Republican senators were facing Tea Party challenges. They all survived them. They have now survived them. And so imagine this if this vote had come up at the beginning of the year when those seven all still faced possible Tea Party primary challenges. They reauthorization would not have been it would have been much harder to reauthorize. And you already see, so Eric Cantor was a big fan of reauthorizing the Export-Import Bank. He's now gone. Kevin McCarthy, his replacement, is not a fan of it. But the fact that this comes after the primaries makes it uh, but so, But so Cantor's scalp doesn't matter that much because he was the only one who was scalped. Well, yeah. And also you can't get scalped until the next – everybody's through their scalping period. And so the people who have to worry about their vote on this would be anybody in 2016 who thinks they're going to get a Tea Party challenge. And so you might watch those senators and particularly the senators who are in kind of swing states. And so you'd watch them to see what they do on the Republican side just because they might have to do some fancy dancing in expectation of getting a primary challenger from the Tea Party. What do you guys think about the argument, which somebody whose name I'm forgetting, unfortunately, made in Slate, that whatever you think about the corruption in the XM bank, that this model of guaranteeing loans as a way of using government resources to spur economic development is a super promising one. In fact, the one that President Obama wanted to use for infrastructure development, one that we should use much more often. Right. Especially at a time when you can't – well, if you're, if you're a Keynesian, as I am, and you can't really get stimulus passed – Right. This Congress, the loan guarantees are a form of backdoor stimulus the same way like the Fed policies are. Yeah, that this is a way of lowering costs to spur economic activity through a government support. 
I think it's good. And I, I mean, I kind of agree with you, Dan, like that the problem is really that there's corruption where it's channeled, but I don't have any problem with the government being this huge source of economic activity or helper, an aid to economic activity. So you all believe that this is going to ultimately get reauthorized. Do you think that in any of these elections, John, we'll just close with you on this, particularly in North Carolina, where there's a Democrat who supports uh, reauthorization or Republican who runs against yeah. it, that this, this issue has any valence? I don't think it has any valence because if, you, if I'm a Republican, I'm much more interested in having control of the Senate for all a bunch of other issues that I care about than I am supporting the Democrat on this one small issue. So I'm not going to vote for the Democrat at the expense of electing a Republican and winning control of the Senate. Okay. Before we get to our last topic, our third topic, a quick word about Slate Plus. As you know, Slate Plus is Slate's new, not so new anymore, Slate's uh, membership program. And you get great benefits. You get from this podcast, you get extra bonus segments. So today we're going to have an extra bonus segment talking about the poor door what that is, you'll have to stay tuned. But there's going to be a poor door segment at the end for Slate Plus members. And, and also Slate Plus will get you discounts. So the Superfest tickets in San Francisco, you'll get at a 30% discount if you're a Slate Plus member. And there's a new special for Slate Plus members exclusively. We have a new Doctor Who podcast, which takes you inside season eight. Will Peter Capaldi be a great doctor or the greatest doctor? I don't know. Do the Daleks stand a chance against his eyebrows each week? Our panel of Slate writers, including playwright Mac Rogers, culture writer June Thomas, science editor Laura Helmuth, and bad astronomer blogger Phil Plate will review the latest episodes. The resident Whovians will talk about the funny bits, the scary bits, the character bits, and all the stuff in between. If you go to slate.com slash gabfest plus, you can sign up for Slate Plus, or you can email me directly, david.plots at slate.com. I will get you the best possible deal. You guys Doctor Who fans? You know, I should be, but I'm not. I've never watched it. I'm not either. I always tried, and I never it, the chain never caught. Yeah. The people who are fans, they're like crazy. They're loony fans. As the fans of Dan Carlin are loony fans. Let's talk about that now. So the, the, uh, the lamps are going out. Nice all, transition there. Yeah. yeah, right. The lamps are going out all over Europe. We shall not see them lit again in our lifetime. This week, a century ago, German airplanes bombed Paris for the first time. Russia's army was crushed in a battle on the eastern front of the new newly started world war, a war that all the powers involved expected to be fast and rather clinical, was starting to take shape as a bloodbath of incomprehensible proportions. A century later, not a single person is alive who fought in the Great War, but the war still haunts us in ways we'll talk about from the Middle East, where it shaped the boundaries that still trouble us today, Russia, which is still recovering from an experiment in communism that began with the collapse of that country in the war, Central Europe, whose fragmentation was accelerated by the war. United States, whose century of global dominance was birthed by the war. And that century is now coming to an end. Dan Carlin is not a historian, but he, he plays one in a podcast. And his hardcore history podcast, as we talked about, is exploring World War I over the course of many long glorious, rich episodes. We're 15 hours in to Blueprint for Armageddon. I cannot recommend this highly enough. So Dan, let's talk today about the long arm of this war and why it still plays for us today. I remember back when I was a history major in college and I had a teacher walk in once and he was going to tell us about the First World War. And he said, you could 
trace a line between most of the major issues and problems that we're still dealing with, and of course this was uh, 1980s, but it's still applicable today, directly to the disintegration of the old order. And, you know, if you look at if you look for patterns in history, I mean, it's an old game and people argue about whether or not there really are patterns. But you can see eras where things stabilize for a while. And then after a certain period of time, they fall apart. So take, for example, usually it happens after some major geopolitical upheaval. So say the Napoleonic Wars in Europe. And when those are over, you have something called the Congress of Vienna, which reestablishes some sort of status quo that lasts until the pressures once again break up to a point where you have another earthquake, which is what the First World War does, the first time that the major European powers had gone to war in almost 100 years, I think it's 99 years, 1815 Battle of Waterloo, so 99 years since Napoleon's time, it's because the deformations had sort of built up over all that time period, and there were power relationships that were not based on reality anymore. You had this new German empire, which, you know, if you wanted to compare it to someone now, maybe you'd say it's a little like the resurgence of of China, right? So you have this new power that everybody realizes is up and coming but doesn't feel like they have, you know, their place in the world, that the relationships are still frozen into a 99-year status quo that was organized before there even was a unified Germany. So you could see, and the people at the time saw, the stresses and strains build up. And that explosion in the First World War is so interesting to people like yours truly because so much had changed since the last time all these nations went to war. I mean, my favorite battle in the First World War is the very first one. When you see the French and the Germans, for example, on, on what will later be the Western Front, clash with no idea of what's going to happen. And everybody was so appalled. The French lost 22,000 killed in one day in August 1914. The losses in one day on any of the major battles in 1916 were larger than all of Europe's losses in all the wars, colonial, domestic, and everything put together during that 99-year period. So what you had here is the modern mechanized industrial world teaching a whole bunch of 19th century people in terms of their mentalities what the 20th century was going to be like. And that's why it's fascinating. And you see everything from the birth of the modern Middle East that comes out of that. As you said, communism, the rise of the United States, and a little paid attention to point, but that's that, you know, Britain was the great creditor nation in 1914. And London was the center of world banking when that war started. Four years later, that had shifted to New York. And the United States had become the great you know, lender nation. People talk all the time about the First World War being a giant cataclysmic European civil war that destroyed a hundred years of wealth creation and civilization and all that. It's the most fascinating, I think, conflict that impacts our lives today. Was it pure catastrophe? Because the death and the slaughter and the suffering is on a scale heretofore unimaginable in the world. And I guess later it is imaginable. Did it have to happen that way? Or could, were there, was there a way that these stresses could have been, the air could have been let out slowly and it wouldn't have been so, so terrible? Or did it need to be so terrible for the world to move forward? I think that's a great question. And historians have been arguing about this ever since. I mean, one of the, one of the real wonderful controversies that's arisen in the last 10 or so years is whether or not the world would have been better off had Britain stayed apart and allowed this to be a purely continental situation. I mean, I mean, everybody always points, for example, to two things which show how nasty the First World War turned out to be for the rest of our, our lives. One is, as you said, the, the czarist empire in Russia falling apart to be replaced by – 
a utopian experiment, Soviet communism, which of course impacted all of us growing up during the Cold War, but also leaving an embittered Germany that had felt somewhat, you know, the old stabbed in the back line that led directly to a Hitler. So if you turn around and say, boy, if the First World War had turned out differently and we didn't have Soviet communism and we didn't have the Third Reich, boy, how different today would be. The question is, is, you know, would it be different good or different bad? And could you actually lose 100 or 200 million people or however many you want to say, you know, you have to throw China in there when you talk about communism. I mean, can we really say that we have a better world today built on the bodies of 100 or 200 million people? I don't know. That's hard for me to stomach. All I can say is that it did birth the modern world for good or ill. Every single person involved in this war, except for, I suppose, there are a few children alive who probably have memories of the battle, but every single person is dead. What does that matter? You know what it reminds me of? There's, there's a line that, um, that an ancient Greek historian had said that the Persian king Xerxes had watched his great army cross the Hellespont, supposedly a million strong, and tears were supposedly streaming down his face. And a courtier asked him, why was he crying with this great army? And he said, I'm crying because it's amazing to think that all these people are going to be dead. In a short period of time, you know, they always talk about institutional memory when you talk about a firm or a company or or a bureaucracy. I think in a sense, you lose those people who remember what it's like to get into one of these. I mean, we have no memory today. I mean, the, the World War Two generation is dying out of what these conflicts are like. I mean, you look at the situation right now in Ukraine and people ask me all the time, could something like that be like another Sarajevo? Could it spark another global world war? And you think to yourself, well, if you had people, the 1946 generation or the 1919 generation, those people who really remembered you know, the stakes that we're talking about here, I think that's a wonderfully moderating influence. And I think the farther away we get from those horrific cataclysms, the more likely it is we'll fall into another one. I think when you listen and you, and you read, for example, to the literature in the 1920s written by these people who were deeply affected by the cataclysm, you realize they form an interesting block of people in our world and, and an important, I think, counterbalance to those who would suggest that, you know, damn the torpedoes, we have to go in here and do this and power politics. I mean, there's a payoff and a cost to power politics. And if the First World War or the Second World War is a potential cost, we're not thinking about that deeply enough. So I do think we miss people who can give us a real clue about the stakes we're talking about here. And, you know, I mean, I think, I think we're, we're careless sometimes in inter- international affairs and a whole generation involving millions and millions of people were living examples, sometimes without arms and legs and eyes and, and walking around these societies of how bad it could get if, if, if our leaders and politicians are not careful. Dan, when you said that, that kind of World War One taught the world how the how the modern world could do warfare is the best example of that the sulfur mustard gas or was there some other technological advance that caused this kind of carnage in a single day or that made it that much more exponentially kind of gruesome than what people thought they knew before it's machine guns and it's artillery and, and the growth of that was was exponential i mean if you just look a generation or two before the First World War broke out, the weaponry is, is still not that dangerous. I mean, it, it, the growth is almost the way we see technology today, where, you know, it's hard to realize, isn't it, that 15 years ago, none of us had iPhones or anything like that, right? And now, look at how quickly that's changed. Well, 15 years before the First World War, even, you'd look and you'd say, well, you know what, this stuff is is dangerous and deadly, but not as bad as it's going to be. At the Battle of Verdun, 
they fired off two million artillery shells in six or seven days. Napoleon had 20,000 cannonballs at Waterloo a hundred years before. So the growth is so exponential that it's almost as though human planners and generals weren't able to keep up with it. I always like to say that, that the first two years of the First World War is a terrible lesson being taught, not just to the soldiers on the ground, but to the generals, too. They don't know how to deal with this mechanization either, and they're dealing with a learning curve. And the only problem with that is that their experiments involve the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people in a lot of battles. Do you think there's any chance of a war like that being fought again? Obviously, there can be a, you can imagine a war which kills on the scale that this, the World War I killed, but a war which... which does technology allow a war to be protracted and stalemated the way it was in World War One, Or has, has technology made that particular horrible aspect of it, the, the idea that it's a siege lasting for four years, that that can't happen again? To me, the bigger issue is a war where everyone uses everything in the arsenal that they can get their hands on because that's what the First World War was that the Second World War wasn't because we had not just gas and chemical weapons in the Second World War but better ones, right? We had nerve gas and all these things that we won't use today and even Hitler didn't use them in the Second World War. So the the last war human beings have fought where every single thing in the arsenal was thrown out there, at least on a a multi-power level because I think Iran and Iraq were launching everything they had at each other in the 1980s, was the First World War. I can't imagine us doing that today. The stuff that's in the arsenal, I mean, we'd be pulling out biological weapons, we'd be launching new plagues. I guess maybe this is the optimist in me, which is a very small part of me. But I can't imagine that we would, or any other power, would launch every single thing we have in the arsenal in a life or death struggle. That's what happened in the First World War. And is that shift because the technology is so terrifying or is it also because our conception of nationalism has shifted? Because one thing that strikes me about the First World War is that this martial spirit that seemed to propel so many people along, it feels very foreign to me. I mean, in this country at this point, we've essentially outsourced the military to very particular segments of the population, lots of them poor people. It's not something that all of us are affected by. And it's I know that's partly because we haven't had a draft, but there's a way in which the notion of war as uplifting and unifying just seems to me like it's gone and that's a good thing. Well, that's something we talked about in the program, too, because one of the things that blows me away is that you could be at a place like the Battle of the Psalm and you could watch a wave and then another wave of men in front of you go over the top of the trenches and get mowed down, having hardly gone any distance at all, and then being told, okay, it's your turn to do that. And those people got out of the trenches and did it. And I can't imagine my I think we I think my generation would just shoot all the officers and take their chances. I do think that that's part of how those people were raised. And in the last show, we quoted a line from F. Scott Fitzgerald's novel, Tender is the Night, where he has one character explaining to the other characters what sort of ingredients that generation had to sort of be raised with to be capable of that. And, he's, and the, the line was, we couldn't do that Western front business again. The young people think they could, but they couldn't. You had to be raised with all those expectations. And as you said, not just nationalism, but all the other romantic expectations that built up in the 19th century that made these people willing to do this. And it should be pointed out, made them willing to do it for a while. Because when you get to 1917, there are going to be some of the soldiers who just say no more. And I think that they're no different than we are in that respect, except I think we would have said it, you know, the first year of the war, our Our grandparents and great-grandparents lasted a couple of years doing amazing things before they got to the point I think we'd be at in five minutes. 
Dan, one question I have, which maybe you'll get to in a later podcast, is America is a wonderfully self-justifying nation. We believe ourselves to be morally right and on the side of virtue. And when you look at World War II, it's clear we were. Is it clear that if you had to pick in 1914 that Germany is the bad guys and, and England and France are the good guys? Or is it is it very ambiguous? Did the right people it's, ar- it's argued about. It's argued about. And, and I certainly, my own opinion is that, and I think Emily's right here, I think we're looking at nationalistic regimes that are very 19th century minded, very colonial minded, very old power minded. And in that sense, I don't think Germany and Austria, Hungary, or any of those regimes are, are evil. I think today we think more in terms of black and white and good and evil. And if you look at the propaganda in the First World War, the Germans were certainly the baby killers of Belgium and all these kinds of things. And they certainly, you know, by British standards especially, were were more militaristic. They would seem to us today more more war minded. But I I agree with you. I don't I don't think in the First World War. I think the Germans kind of got a raw deal afterwards. And I think some of that was the lingering bitterness that helped people, you know, that used to pride themselves on music and culture and all these things in the 19th century that turned them towards the evilness and the darkness of the Third Reich. I mean, you have to be very embittered and feel very like you were screwed over, really, to get that way. And and I do think that the Germans felt like, hey, everybody was doing this. We weren't the only ones in this war. How come we're getting blamed for the whole thing? But let's remember, there were huge financial concerns and reparations and everything. And, And the French, who had good reason to be upset, I mean, they were even making rules in the peace treaty that said, when we bury the bodies, the French get to be in, you know, with white crosses that symbolize purity on their graves. The Germans have to have black crosses that symbolize, you know, perfidity for their graves. There was a lot of lingering animosity, and somebody was going to have to pay for this whole mess. And so the Germans got saddled with it, but I I agree with you guys, I think. I don't know what, what all you think, but to me, that was just another typical power politics war. And no, I don't think like the Second World War, which I do think was a good and evil thing, I don't think the First World War was a good and evil thing. Dan, this has been great. I strongly recommend to all our listeners that if you are at all interested in the subject, go listen to Hardcore History's uh, Blueprint for Armageddon, episodes one through four, with many more coming. It will be well worth your endless hours you will spend listening to it. Let's go to cocktail chatter when you're when you're uh, discussing the Great War at the Dickerson Mance. John, what are you going to be chattering about with, with your lovely family? It's not so much a chatter as it is a recommendation, which is um, for the great book Moonwalking with Einstein uh, by Josh Four, which is Moonwalking with Einstein, the art and science of remembering everything. I read this book while I was on vacation. It's about a lot of things. So it's I've read a lot of books about expertise and people who are experts in things. And this is one of the best examples of a book that tells the story of the people who are these memory champions, but also uses the experience of the author in becoming a memory champion, but then tells also the story about expertise and isn't boring and doesn't. A lot of those books about highly competent people doing fascinating or interesting things, you feel like each chapter is a repetition of the previous chapter, but basically maybe with some different names or something else. This is a great book in which it basically talks about the ancient memory techniques and how Josh uses those to, to compete as a memory champion. And one of them is a memorization technique where basically you just turn names into more memorable images. So this sort of Baker principle, which is that if you tell somebody, you show them a picture and you say, this person is a Baker, they're much more likely to remember that person's face than if you say the person's name 
is Baker. So what you do is you take a famous name and then you create an image out of it that is unforgettable. And that's the way you remember that name. Well, I I got into this game with my 12-year-old son in which we used locations in the house the way memory champions do. They place a different person in each room of the house and then go through the house. And that's the way they create a string of things to remember. And so we did this with the presidents. And walking through each room, coming up with creative names for the uh, 44 presidents was an unexpected joy that grew out of this book um, and was a lot of fun. And you're supposed to make the the images that much weirder and and. Pick one. Give pornographic. us one. Just no, tell I, one. I can't. Tell us one. I, uh, You're por- doing pornographic images oh, no, for your 12-year-old no, no, son? No, 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 no. John Adams, which is me adding two hams together as a part of a math oh, problem. Oh, John had hams. Yeah. Uh, Martin Van Buren is um, uh, a martini van <laughs> burning the uh, rubber on the tires. And then lots of his friends who, you know, the, like Benjamin Harrison and William Henry Harrison are people doing things with their hairy sons. Anyway, it was just a delight. It was one of the many ways in which this book is delightful. It was not just the way it's written and all that's in it, but then that this little fun little game grew out of it. Um, so I recommend the book to everyone. I'm just going to add that my two children love that book. It is a great, it's a great book. I love that book, too. All right, Emily or Dan, I'm going to go to you. Emily Bazelon, what's your chatter? I have two chatters. I very quickly am going to apologize for something I said last week that I got a bunch of sad emails and tweets about. I did not mean to be insensitive in diminishing the importance of $50,000 in people's lives. I do understand that it is a lot of money. I was, first of all, I think just trying to like score rhetorical points against David, which clearly led me astray. And second of all, I was thinking very literally about really transforming people's lives, and particularly in particular the lives of a poor family I know. There were there were lots of people, and so it felt to me like fifty thousand dollars was inadequate to do all of the complete change to their lives that I I wish could be accomplished. I wish that I could accomplish and can't. Anyway, I'm really sorry to all the people I insulted and offended. Okay, so here's my second new chatter. I um, really, this weekend, am going to be waiting for a judge to rule on the new abortion law in Texas that is scheduled to go into effect on Monday. If it goes into effect, all but six clinics in the state are expected to close. It's a big state, 270,000 miles. That's not very many clinics. Um, And in thinking about this, I've been working on a story for the New York Times Magazine, which is online on Thursday and will be in the paper over the weekend. And it's about a doctor in Amsterdam who has been mailing abortion pills around the world to women who live in countries where abortion is illegal or severely restricted. Um, And she's figured out a way, she thinks legally, where doctors in um, various undisclosed locations can write prescriptions that then get filled by a drug exporter in India who she trusts to send good quality medication. Because there's lots of these pills online, but often there are scam sites. Anyway, um, if you guys get a chance to read the piece, I'd love to hear from GabFest fans um, what you think about it. To me, it was like kind of a mind-bending notion, and I'm still not exactly sure how it stacks up to what's happening in the United States, but I feel like there are some just thoughts, provocative thoughts there to to think through. That's a great story. Dan Carlin, what is your chatter? Well, call it a pet peeve, if you will. I've always been very upset that the American people have, have little to no control over their foreign policy. And while that might be an amorphous subject most of the time, I think as we watch the situation in Ukraine and right before we came on today, there's still more talk that maybe Russia is intervening in a more um, more open and aggressive way. 
I don't think we're going to have a, a horrible outcome from that situation, but the chances are higher than we've seen in a very long time. And in reality, the American people are not involved in this discussion at all. If the Russians went in there tomorrow in strength, what would we do? And what would the American people's role in that be? I mean, do we have any say in how we react? Remember, Ukraine is not a NATO country. We don't have an Article 5 agreement with them to protect them. Does that mean we wouldn't do anything? And, and do the American people have any say in this at all? Or are we just going to be carried along in short order by events in a very similar way? I mean, I have listeners say, is it like the First World War? And I always say it's not. But it might be if we find ourselves trying to react on the fly without having any sort of a public debate or conversation about this. You know, they say in warfare, you always want to gain the impetus, right? You want to get everybody responding to your moves. Seems to me we're in the situation where that's what we're doing. And if, if that's the way it's going to be, I'd love to be having a national discussion right now over what the United States should do. I know you don't want to tell your potential adversary and warn them about, about your plans. At the same time, the American people are going to find themselves very shocked and surprised if all of a sudden we have an, an international conflict breaking out over something that clearly you can see we have a smoldering flame going on in Ukraine. If it breaks out into a forest fire, uh, we're not ready for that. And I'd like to see us talking about that. All right. My chatter is uh, more frivolous. There's a great little controversy erupted this week over an airline flight that was diverted when a passenger, one passenger, prevented another passenger in front of him from reclining her seat. So she went to recline her seat. He put up a thing called a knee defender, which prevents an airline seat from reclining. They came to, not quite to blows, but the passenger in front tossed some water on the, the seat blocker and the flight was diverted, which seems like overkill to me. But there was a wonderful piece by Josh Barrow in the New York Times this week, making a very persuasive case that, that in fact, you have an absolute right to recline your seat. Like that, when you buy an airline seat, you have bought the right to recline, and no one can prevent you, except insofar as the, the stewardesses can for safety reasons. It was very persuasive. As somebody who is long-legged and is constantly the victim of seat recliners, I, okay, I so don't recline. Okay, so here's my question about I, that, David. Just, don't you decline your, recline your own seat? Why do people find this so oppressive? I mean, I look, in an ideal world, you get to recline. The person in front of you chooses not to. But like, as long as everyone can recline, why is it so terrible? Well, it's terrible if you're a tall person and you're trying to work. It's hard to work work when you're reclined. So, yeah. And also it's hard to work when the when the person in front of you reclines. No, even if you've paid right. the upcharge. Yeah. Josh made the point, like, if you don't want people to recline, well, there's a solution. One is that airlines can create a non-reclining zone. Yeah, yeah that's a good idea. idea. And two, you can offer someone, you could pay the person in front of you. I will give you $20 not to recline your seat. That's way too awkward. Nobody is really going to well, do it's that. It's no less awkward than putting a, like, a device, yeah, a device that, that, there. That, that locks that's them a, in. They're no, upright No, but you do that locked. silently and you hope you're going to get away with it. You don't – You don't. You're actually, making utilitarian claim. I, when I agree with you, that would be better, a, right. but it's not going to happen. Um, anyway. David, did the airline put up with that? I mean, were, do, do they endorse these, these knee no, things? No, no, no. The airline, it believes that the property right exists with the person who buys the seat so this person can recline. You may not use a knee defender on most airlines. But nor do they endorse throwing water on a person who uses a knee defender. But apparently what happened is, I think this, I'm right, that the person put the knee defender on, it became conflict, and the stewardess or the steward told the, the person with the knee defender to take it off and maybe didn't, and that was what caused the kerfuffle. But it's crazy to divert a flight. That, to me, is, like, just nuts. The cost of that is ludicrous. You can charge everybody with disorderly conduct when they get off the plane, but to, to, to take a flight down because people are 
spatting over a seat? That's nuts. Anyway, the GabFest is produced today by Mike Volo. If Mike were an army in World War I, he would be England. Calm, <laughs> quiet, bearing any burden. Our intern is Max Tawney, who would be Belgium. Small, plucky, playing the great powers off each other. John Dickerson would be France. He'd be elegant, history-minded, classy even in low moments. Emily Bazelon would be uh, Germany. Oh, my God. Ruthless. Oh, no, they're not the villains. They're not the villains. Ruthlessly efficient. Didn't you, listen to, I don't didn't you care. listen to what they're Dan said? They're not the villains. Dan said, you're not the villain. You're ruthlessly efficient and perfectly Terrific. drilled. And it always, it always turned out well. The executive <laughs> producer. Great. And, you, and you have a very <laughs> pointy you, thing David? on your to helmet. Which role I'm, are you I'm getting to yourself. me. The executive producer of Slate Podcast, Andy Bowers, would be the United States. Distant, and but they're ready to ride, ride to the rescue. I would be Russia. Chaotic, disorganized, and falling apart. Our show page is slate.com slash gabfest. Lots of links to what we talked about today. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash gabfest. Check at Slate Gabfest our Twitter feed for great tweets. Our email address, if you want to email us and uh, praise Dan, is gabfest at slate.com. Please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Leave a comment and rating while you're there. If you like the show, subscribing, commenting, and rating really helps us. You should also subscribe to Hardcore History and Common Sense while you're there. Dan's podcast. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson and Dan Carlin of Hardcore History, I'm David Plotz. We'll be back with you next week. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.